0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma, the president of American Moment. And I'm
1: Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment.
0: We have a great episode for y'all today. We're going to be joined by one of our favorite people, but we wanted to talk a little bit more about what we're trying to achieve at American Moment and encourage you all to go back to the website at AmericanMoment.org. I will say our executive producer for the podcast and chief creative officer at American Moment, Jake Mercier, did a ton of work on that. So do him a favor, go on, check it out. It's beautiful. We're very proud of it. If there are any errors, please feel free to send in a note very privately and let us know if something needs to be fixed. But you can find all sorts of stuff on there everything from our founder's letter describing what we're trying to achieve with American Moment, applications for our summer fellowship and summit, a conference on American statecraft, as well as Am Canon, our part conservative canon, part streaming service that helps you understand politics in the way that we believe it.
1: You know, many people are saying that Am Canon is conservative Netflix.
0: And I'm inclined to agree. Netflix is a demonic company that we do not endorse at American Moment. So I will not call it a conservative Netflix. But we <laughs> created
1: our own conservative alternative, something what I'm saying.
0: like that. We we are not we're not doing uh you know cringe movies on here, but we are trying to essentially create a multimedia um aggregator for the sorts of content that helps you understand politics in the way they do on it you'll find pieces uh, you know everything from books and essays podcasts YouTube videos short pieces Twitter lists uh, and newsletters uh, everything in between uh, the weird the wonderful the normal and the boring so highly recommend you check it out uh, we've been floored by the response we've gotten in the past couple of weeks as we launched American moment you know I mentioned our fellowship earlier the sheer amount of applications we've gotten is is utterly humbling and the sorts of applications we've gotten from people who otherwise would not be able to participate in the political process, people from a genuinely working class background. I mean, it's humbling, and it ratifies everything that we're trying to achieve here at American Moment in in terms of trying to create... Um, a class of people who will go on to lead the right in many ways that looks and and feels in their bones a lot more like the great base um, of the conservative movement and of the great middle of this country. So we've been honored by the support and we're really excited for the episode that we're going to have today uh, with American Moment Board of Advisors member Rachel Bovard. Uh, Rachel is the Senior Director of Policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Um, She is also a, I believe it's called a a fellow at Defense Priorities, where she works on issues of foreign policy restraint. And she's also the co-author of Conservative, Knowing What to Keep, uh, that she co-wrote with Senator Jim DeMint, who was a champion for many of our issues before uh, this current era, where they certainly have uh, new, 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 new oxygen in them. So we had a really fantastic conversation. What did you think of the episode?
1: It was great. Um, I'm a big fan of Rachel's. I would I would encourage everyone um, who is on Twitter, every one of our listeners, which I assume is probably most people uh, to our audience (laughs) tends to skew online (laughs) (laughs) to follow Rachel at um, at Rachel Bovard. Um, You know, she's been one of our most steadfast supporters. She was one of the first people that we talked to, um, you know, second. Literally. Yeah, they literally the second person that we talked to, um, you know, when we started working on American Moment, um, she's a great supporter of ours. Um, she is truly um, kind of the future of the conservative movement. You know, we hope many of you will be able to meet her um, and hear her talk. And this was really just a fantastic episode um, talking about the, the failures of the conservative movement, you know, in, in, in the legislature and in policy. Um, and, you know, Rachel provides some really um, kind of creative solutions for the future.
0: After we wrapped up the episode, she told us that one of the stories she told on there uh, about an incident that she had with one Senate mi- minority leader now, Mitch McConnell, it's actually the first time she's talked publicly about it. So we hope you have uh, a great time listening in on that conversation. And without further ado, let's go to Rachel. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: We wanted to have you on because we love basically everything that you stand for and everything that you fight for, but also you have a lot of expertise in the various issues that American Moment is really focused on. And so um, one thing I just wanted to get you to explain is what's your background? How'd you get to the place you are now in D.C. with your role at CPI, Defense Priorities, and, and the other organizations that you help out with? Just paint a picture for our audience how you got here.
2: Yeah, I never had a plan. Um, <laughs> I never really thought I would end up here at all. But, um, you know, I went, I, I came from, I'll go all the way back. I came from a very, very small town in upstate New York, about 4,000 people nice. called Dansville, New York, um, where the biggest industry was manufacturing until it was heroin. And um, I went to public school. I graduated, maybe a quarter of my class went to college, the rest joined the military. And it was actually a high school where most, you know, students take SAT prep for the PSAT. It was required that we had to take the military entrance exam, oh, like the whole school. It, it, yeah, the ASVAB. It yeah. was required because so many of us, that was just the pipeline. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, as a result, I lost a lot of my classmates in Iraq and Afghanistan, which has informed a lot of my views about foreign policy. But from there, I went to a small liberal arts college where I met a professor called Dr. Paul Kengor, which I think in some circles of conservatives, the boomer conservatives will know who he is. But he was the first person that was like, you know, maybe you should try politics. (laughs) What were you planning
0: on doing when you went to college? So you didn't have a plan. No, I didn't really.
2: I, I was a history and political science major with a minor in economics basically like the most use, useless three things that you can cobble together to make any kind of money. Um, so I had some like vague notion of law school on the horizon, never actually made it. Um, was, yeah, yeah, I know. I think I, my, my brain is still intact. Um, but I was a research assistant. I paid my way through college, so I worked for him 20 hours a week. And um, you know, he wrote a number of different books, and I was sort of helping him in that regard a lot of primary source research at the Library of Congress interviews and he said, "Hey, if you're interested in this, you know let me send you down to d c picked up the phone, I got an internship at the Heritage Foundation, which you know for me at the time was like d c was the biggest city I'd ever been to yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> so um and I was just captivated um by just this the pace of it, the decision making, you know everything to me happened here. Mm-hmm. And that was when I decided this is where I wanted to be. So right out of college, I got a job on Capitol Hill working for a congressman from Illinois named Don Manzullo, who was no longer in office. Um, actually, he was beaten in primary by Adam Kinzinger, who was endorsed by Eric Cantor. So that was when Eric Cantor started endorsing against uh, his own incumbents. That mm-hmm. was that that race. But anyway, that, that job was a big education for me at the time because I didn't really have, you know... A, a political philosophy that was really baked in, and you're sort of raised in this. You know, when you're coming from a rural environment, so it was like a red area. You know, and I kind of came around to this notion. You know that well. I think free markets are good, and you know all these things that you're taught to believe. And I, I was, um, you know, raised in the evangelical church. I'm now Catholic, but I was raised in the evangelical church, uh, so I had that sort of background. But it was that first job where I you know, ended up being a senior legislative assistant for Manzullo on the House Financial Services Committee. And, of course, I was 24 years old, right? Knew nothing about yeah. I was like, what is a mm-hmm. stock? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, I will handle this portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. And then... GameStop
0: the... is a stock. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. Um, but then the market crashed. And this was 2008. And it was through the, you know, Lehman failure of Lehman Brothers you know, sitting in those briefings with the members of Congress, all learning at the same time what a collateralized debt obligation was. Nobody knew. And, you know, hearing, you know, the Hank Paulson and and later Tim Geithner make the case, you know, that we have to bail out these these banks and sort of coming to it from a perspective where this seemed wrong. Like things happened that seemed criminal, right? And I was very intrigued by that concept and couldn't understand why You know, I was watching all these members of Congress feel like they had to bail out these banks while at the same time, you know, my grandparents were losing everything. And that fundamentally did not seem fair to me. But at the time, you were not allowed to say that out loud. You know, you were not allowed to criticize the church of big business. And so that was sort of the first sort of moment of speculation I had that maybe all was not well (laughs) in this ideology.
1: So... Is there anyone that you were like working with at the time that you feel like had like a similar revelation about this and, you know, is is kind of working, I guess, to to combat the uh, church of big business uh, in Washington now, like anyone that came to the same realization at the time? or
2: Yeah. So it was interesting. There's another staffer I was working with there at the time um, who I'm not going to mention him because I don't want to name check him, but um, he ended up going to work in the Senate and literally has made his career trying to dismantle the big banks. Like on the, worked for David Vitter for a very long time. David Vitter, former senator from Louisiana, very active on this front. And I think it it inculcated a lot of us in that area or that generation, I guess, of staff that, you know, it's, you should be critical um, of what you're being told. And, you know, a reflexiveness about Main Street is not always the best approach.
0: So after you you know, got through the financial crisis and everything as a legislative staffer on the Hill, paint a picture of, of what you did next going into the nonprofit world and everything.
2: Yeah. So I sort of made a career as a little bit of a disruptor. <laughs> um, I went from the House to the Senate to work for Senator Rand Paul right after he got elected. And for me, Rand Paul was the person I was waiting a long time to work for, not sort of for any policy positions necessarily, than for a disposition. Uh, where he was willing to say the hard things out loud, particularly about defense, particularly about foreign policy. And that's a portfolio I ended up handling for him um, through the filibuster of John Brennan and drone strikes and, you know, all this kind of stuff um, and working for someone who was really willing to just, you know, pause and say, I know that we've always thought this way, but maybe we shouldn't now. Right. And he's not that on all issues, but he was for me a lot on the foreign policy and defense. Um, I ended up leaving the Senate in 2015, and I worked very briefly for the Heritage Foundation for about a year. Um, epic story of how I left the Senate, by the way. Do tell. Um, there was, we were considering a transportation bill, of all things. And I was working for the Senate Steering Committee at the time under Mike Lee.
0: And Can you explain what that is?
2: Yeah, the Senate Steering Committee is the the sort of informal conference or caucus of the most conservative senators. Um in the Senate, and it's but it's more designed to be sort of um, procedural um, mastery and procedural advice and strategic guidance for like how to get things done on the Senate floor. Because people forget the Senate's really dysfunctional now, but members have a tremendous amount of authority given their parliamentary rights. Not a individual lot of individual members. Individual members, yeah, almost equal authority, all hundred of them. And the members who use that authority are usually the most effective. And so the steering committee was designed to sort of amplify that power, um, and. At this time, this is in 2015, you know, the heyday of Obamacare repeal. And at this time, the, the Republican House had taken like 50 Obamacare repeal votes and the Senate had taken zero. And um, we're on this transportation bill and Mitch McConnell's like, OK, fine. You guys want our Obam- Obamacare repeal vote. We'll put it on the amendment tree. It'll be stuck at 60 votes. It'll fail. But hey, let's pat ourselves on the back. We've We've had a vote. And my job was basically to make that vote real. And so... What we realized, working with Senator Lee, is that McConnell had made an error when he filled the tree. Germainness goes up the tree. Long story short, the amendment was actually germane. It couldn't fail like he wanted it to. It was actually germane at 51 votes. You would not believe the meltdown that occurred (laughs) in the Republican conference over the fact that they were going to have to take a meaningful Obamacare appeal vote, that they couldn't all just vote for it because there was like 54 Republicans at the time or 53. So they could all vote for it because it would never get 60. But if it's a 51, suddenly it changes from theater to reality. And there was a complete and total meltdown. Um, You can Google this. Uh, My email was leaked to a McConnell staffer printed on the front page of Politico that like Mike Lee's staff is trying to destroy the conference um, there were conference meetings where my emails were handed out to the senators it was like a it was a crazy moment where McConnell was just flailing but Mike Lee because he's actually is a pretty brilliant uh, parliamentarian himself basically cut a deal with McConnell and was like fine i'll re- I'll withdraw but you will use the reconciliation package for Obamacare appeal. And that's how we got that in 2015. If you remember, there was an Obamacare appeal vote when it, when we knew Obama would veto it. But then later when tr- it was a sort of a test run for for Trump. And later when Trump took office, they had that same vote and a number of those Republicans flipped. Right. Yeah. Same concept. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, it's real now. Yeah. Uh, we have a president. that will actually sign it. No, we can't actually vote for it.
1: Yeah. So can you explain for the audience why it is like senators don't want to take these meaningful votes to to do things that they've promised to do on the on the campaign trail like a lot of us i was not politically cognizant at that time so like i was not super aware of why this was happening so could you explain for you know members of our audience why why they didn't want to take those votes
2: so the the thing you have to understand first is the thing that senators hate more than anything else in the world is voting they hate it Because voting creates a record. Voting is accountability. It's why they will go to great lengths to avoid it. And I think on this, you know, this Obamacare issue specifically, you know, this was a great issue where something the base really wanted. And and senators ran on this issue. Right. When you remember the Tea Party wave, people think it was just about deficit spending. It wasn't. That was part of it. But a lot of it was Obamacare. A lot of it was amnesty. You know, a lot of it was this anti-elite sentiment that I think set up what was to be Trump's election. I think actually the Tea Party was sort of the first shot across the bow that something was wrong. Yeah. Um, but they hate actually having to see this through. And I think for Republicans in particular, they on this issue, they didn't have a plan. You know, that was a big failure of the Republican Party that exists to this day. They have no meaningful health care plan at all. And so to repeal Obamacare, you know, meant that they were going to have to do the hard work of, of coming up with what to do then. And none of them were willing to do it. Um, you know, and I think it's like it was easy to just say, no, we'll we'll let the status quo exist and we'll tweak it around the edges because we don't have anything better. And that's a fundamental failure of, I think, a lot of what you guys are trying to address to some extent, where there was a lack of infrastructure, a lack of creative thinking, and a lack of willing to push boundaries against certain orthodoxies that existed that still exist around the healthcare space.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like one of those, like, you know, looking at just a straight Obamacare repeal vote, like. I'm not sure that sans a plan, that's necessarily a good idea, because it's basically this ridiculous Jenga tower that's been created. And if you pull out random pieces, who knows what the consequences are going to be. And it's clear that there is no coalition on the right right now when it comes to an actual substantive agenda on healthcare. care. Um, do you think that that's a consequence of kind of the politics of the Tea Party era? Or, or where does that come from beyond the personnel problem that we're trying to solve?
2: Yeah. You know, I wouldn't say it's the politics of the Tea Party so much. I think the Tea Party was just a lot of energy. It was a lot of resentment in the base of, you know, having things like Obamacare jammed down their throats because Republicans were really unable to combat it substantively. Right. The only thing we really had was HSAs. Right. Th- that's the only Republican. Health yeah, savings accounts. Yeah. Health <laughs> savings accounts is really the only Republican health care plan that exists is health, health savings accounts. Um you know, we had
0: we will make a special checking account for you to fill with the money you don't have. Right. So that when you get into a life-threatening car accident, you can still go into debt, but you have an HSA. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully <laughs> right. you can cover it. You yeah. know?
2: That's our entire plan. So that was like the only thing we could push back with substance. And then the other the only th- other thing we had was allegations of socialism. Like that was it. And so, you know, I think we've had a really difficult time. Again, I would say it's less a Tea Party politics and more, again, it comes down to these sort of entrenched orthodoxies of you cannot have anything managed because that is big government and that is not acceptable. But unfortunately, the government is so entangled already in our healthcare system, you know, and it also goes to this idea of should there be a social consensus around what we provide as a baseline, right, in this country for healthcare? That is something that the right just has not, I think, has a mental block toward thinking about. And they think, you know, well, the free market will solve everything. And in, in healthcare, there just isn't. There is no free market, and there never will be, just given the way the marketplace is set up.
0: I remember um Dave bratt, who um, who was the Congressman who beat Eric Cantor. He did an appearance on uh, our friends at at uh, the American Conservatives right now podcast. and and this was the title. It's like, there is no free market. Yeah. Um policy. Happens every day on healthcare, regardless, because there's this giant intervention that government does in the forms of Medicare and Medicaid and all the regulations we have on the healthcare issue. And so there's choices we have to make. And, you know, putting fingers in our ears and going blah, 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 blah is not going to make those choices go away. And that's been some of the answer that the right has had historically.
2: Yeah, it was kind of amazing. Like, this, this dynamic played out. If you remember when when President Trump issued that executive order on Medicare Part B, basically all he said was, I am no longer going to allow big pharma to set its own prices for what seniors will pay for these drugs. In every other country in the world, these companies are forced to negotiate with the government. And, and to have a real negotiation, it means the government can walk away, right? We don't have that in this country. We literally are dictated to by the richest companies in the world about what our seniors will pay for these drugs that was all he was suggesting and you had elements of the right that were like this is socialism
0: and it was like ads on facebook for years and i still get them (laughs) and it was
2: like guys it's not it's 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 it's, there wasn't a free market there before like the private industry dictating to you what you will pay is not a free market so there we've i think applied terms to describe healthcare in a in that in a market that just doesn't exist, right? The free market doesn't exist. Socialism doesn't really exist here. We have some blend of a system that we must now sort of negotiate within.
1: For some reason, when I uh, ask people on Twitter about who's funding these uh, big pharma please at libertarian think tanks, I uh, I get blocked. So <laughs> it's yeah, I'm really sure why
0: people get very mad. You know. Your favorite conservative organizations sponsored by Pfizer—that's yeah. <laughs> that's quite common. So you you did a brief stint at the Heritage Foundation, which we don't have to get too into, but needless to say, you did leave, and then you started help start uh, the Conservative Partnership Institute. What is CPI? What does it do, and and what purpose does it serve in in this space in Washington?
2: Yeah. So in 2017, myself, Ed Corrigan, Wesley Denton, and Senator Jim Dement all left the Heritage Foundation to start CPI, and it was very much of a of a Test of a theory that we had, which is, you know, there's a lot of policy think tanks in Washington. We don't want to be that uh, because we don't want to replicate what everyone else is doing. But there is a gap between good policy being written and actually having the strategies and tactics to get it passed. Because, again, the skill set that I have and that I learned most of what I know from Ed Corrigan, um, you know, and Senator Mint and, and Wesley, we all were very um, steeped in sort of the tactical side of policymaking. So you have, you know, the policies and then the strategies to get them across the finish line. Most of that skill set comes off Capitol Hill and goes downtown. Like there's a lot of people that can do this, but they're, you have to be rich and be able to pay a lobbyist to access it. And so we wanted to do that skill set for the conservative movement as a service, right? And so a lot of what we do here is, I call this almost a strategic consulting service for the conservative movement. (laughs) So we don't write our own policy. We're not a think tank. We don't pump out white papers. But we do do a lot of strategic consulting, right, with, you know, the March for Life wants to do something pro-life. And, you know, we're working with a senator who is going to have an amendment opportunity to connect them, to kind of give them the best, you know, tools, tactics, strategies. I also teach, a lot of this, I teach five-week course on Senate procedure, House procedure, you know, how, on federal budget policy and process. Like, how do you read the budget? How do you amend the budget? What's a good point of order? All these kind of tactics. That again, this knowledge exists, but you know, most of it is captured downtown. We try to do it um, here for the conservative movement and anyone else who's kind of interested in learning it.
0: That gets to a, a fundamental divide that I've noticed a lot when it comes to. Conservatives in Washington and and actually even kind of our faction of the right, the more populist, the more nationalist side is that you can have all of the good ideas and good intentions in the world, but if you don't have the strategy in order to implement it, you're eventually just going to be wailing at the wind. And that seemed like a lot of what happened during the Trump administration. Can you describe sort of what you saw? Because it was right kind of in parallel that CPI was founded, President Trump came into office. What was sort of the narrative that you saw uh, and that you discerned as you were watching the Trump administration unfold and how in some ways it is a it is a test case for what happens when you don't have that strategic mindset?
2: Yeah. You know, I think Trump was well-intentioned, but I think to your point was his, the ultimate implementation of his agenda was really hamstrung by the fact that he picked the wrong people to, to put in positions of influence and power. And it's not necessarily that they didn't have the strategic skill set. I think a lot of them did. But it was focused in the wrong direction. They
0: were very good at doing bad things.
2: Or they were very good at being self-interested. Yeah. Um, he didn't really have – I mean, look, you know, bringing in Ryan Priebus and Katie Walsh, like the first you know White House chief of staff, and he's going to be the guy that makes a lot of the early hires – You know, again, has a strategic skill set, is well-networked by Washington standards, completely detached from Trump's agenda, what what Trump wanted to do philosophically. I'm not even sure Reince Priebus could tell you what Trump was trying to do in the early days because he just didn't understand. And he appointed people in positions, you know, Johnny DeStefano, probably one of the most influential hires Reince Priebus ever made, headed up the uh, Office of Presidential Personnel, who basically staffs the White House. And at that point, you know, Johnny DeStefano, again, no discernible connection (laughs) to what Trump was trying to do. Former Boehner staffer, you know, nice guy, I'm sure very talented, but not aligned. And so ended up filling the White House with people who, you know, wanted really more to check the box on their resume of having worked at the White House or – you know, sort of an establishment Washington pipeline, you know, oh, Republican president must check that box, must get that on my resume, you know, onto my next K Street job. And so it I think it was not necessarily a lack of strategic talent in that regard, although there was a lot of, you know, people who I think, you know, the people that were well-intentioned and aligned with Trump lacked that experience, right? So you had people who had the skill set but weren't philosophically aligned, and then you had people that were philosophically aligned but lacked the actual strategic skill set to get the job done. And because I think what Trump taught us is it's not enough, right? It's not enough to be well-intentioned and have the big MAGA agenda. You have to surround yourself with people that have both those qualities, that are philosophically with you but also can know how to work Washington, you know, toward that specific end,
1: yeah, I think that's one of the things that I noticed, you know, with the Trump administration and, and as I think back over the last, you know, four or five years is that uh, Trump asked a lot of good questions, but uh, didn't have a lot of good answers, a lot of good, you know, ways to, to, you know, implement policy solutions to solve a lot of the problems Um you know, plaguing uh, uh, everyday Americans. I do want to ask you about this, um, piece, you know, large part of why we wanted to have you on. We have it featured on, uh, AM cannon right now, um, titled too few of the president's men, um, on the American conservative. Um, if you could give the audience just like a, like a 32nd description of like, of, of, of this piece, you know, what you're trying to get across and, and how Republican administrations, uh, can avoid the problems of the Trump administration in the future.
2: Yeah, it sort of links kind of to what we were just talking about, because the, the point of that piece, and I think the point of you know, a lot of why the Trump administration succeeded and failed and where they did is personnel as policy, right? You have to have the right people and you have to have the right skill sets to really get your agenda across. Because again, a lot of the people Trump or that worked for Trump were very skilled and networked and capable And steeped in the experience of Washington, but they weren't getting the job done, you know, for Trump. A lot of them outright opposed Trump, you know, before he came into office. And so you didn't have that sense of purpose, that sense of mission, um, that, again, philosophical alignment. You know, you had a lot of people in the White House working to undermine Trump himself and what Trump was trying to do. And, you know, snakes and vipers. Right. That's that's kind of what you call him. He he willingly invited those types into the White House. I think, you know, he trusted the wrong people. You know, again, Reince Priebus, probably not the best (laughs) early hire. Chris Christie, remember, was the first person hired to head up the transition. Again, Chris Christie, who was like, I probably am not going to agree with Trump on all these issues. And again, I'm not talking about sycophancy. I'm not talking about yes men. But I am talking about finding people that have sort of that deep connection ideologically and philosophically combined with, you know, that relevant experience. Because Washington isn't like the business community, right? We saw this also with Rex Tillerson, right? You bring in someone who, who is successful in business and you're like, well, they're successful in business. They, I'm sure they can run the State Department. And Washingtonism is not like any other town in the world. It has its own set of skills. And a lot of it is strategic, but a lot of it is just relational knowing what landmines to avoid, knowing where the bodies are buried, you know, knowing how the appropriations process works, you know, knowing why this undersecretary is important and this one's not like that just takes experience. And, you know, Tillerson obviously didn't have it and he wasn't surrounded by the people that did either. Um, And so I think that that was, you know, just a, a failure of I want to say failure of optimism a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we love to think that business leaders are going to be great in politics, and they rarely are. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah, it, it, that all sounds basically right. I guess what was the the practical upshot? You know, when, when I think of the themes that the president ran on in twenty sixteen, immigration, foreign policy restraint, trade, China—these were some of the big themes. What ended up making it through to the end of the administration and. You know, Should we think of it positively? Should we think of it negatively? I mean, one of the classic ones that you've actually pushed back on before is the idea that we had some sort of massive win on judges. And it's been one of the most illuminating things that I've read and learned from you is that actually we didn't. Can you explain that a little bit? Like, why was the quote unquote victory on judges not necessarily all it's made out to be by Cocaine Mitch and his allies? Yeah.
2: The judge obsession, the juristocracy.
1: <laughs> um, the judges and the tax cuts. I, oh yeah, everyone don't forget. Should remember the tax cuts.
2: Don't forget. Um, yeah. So the judges, you know, in actually in the in the piece on the American conservative, I make, you know, I'm critical of Trump's reliance on Mitch McConnell. I think he deferred too much to him. I think he could have gotten a lot more done if he had pushed Mitch McConnell um, in and and the Republican Senate. Judges was an interesting one because, you know, this was not, I don't think, Trump's choice. It was McConnell's choice. He said, look, my legacy is not going to be any sort of legislative, you know, feat here. I am just going to do judges. And if you think about it, it was kind of a shrewd move by McConnell because everybody thinks it's some kind of like big, you know, arm-twisting negotiation with the Democrats to get all these judges through. It's not. The filibuster's gone. There is no filibuster on judges anymore, not even on the Supreme Court. So at this point, confirming judges is literally scheduling. It is scheduling. It is putting them on the floor. And when you have as many, you know, 53 Republican senators it's, and they're confirmed at 51, it's not hard. It's not hard. It's literally just scheduling.
0: Well, scheduling is not all that because as as I love to point out to people, most people in Washington work a two and a half day work week. Can you describe yeah. sort of how the typical senator or congressman actually goes about doing their week and, and how little work they actually do?
2: Yeah. The two and a half day work week. We all aspire to it, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, yeah. it was it was a radicalizing thing for me. I remember when when Nick and I first started this project, we started realizing that. Any email sent on Thursday afternoon was going to get an answer Monday at 4 p.m. at best because people have already gone off to their three martini lunch and they going to play golf and they're not coming in on Friday.
1: Yeah, and that's the other thing too is like I traditionally uh, work on Sundays. I, so I take my Saturdays off, you know, that's my Sabbath, listen to the church service, all that on Saturday. And then Sunday, like I work. And when I tell people that, like they think I'm being held hostage. Like <laughs> I'll be like, oh yeah, you know, working all day Sunday. So I'll get to it then. And they're like, why? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you doing that?
2: Yeah. yeah. No, this whole town is built around the congressional schedule, which is basically the Senate schedule. The House does a little bit more, although not much. But the Senate, right, these guys fly in Monday night for what we call the bed check vote. So that's like a, a meaningless vote that's basically just, you know, designed to see who's in town. Right. So if if you if you are a special interest, by the way, and your bill goes up Monday night, you know, they were never going to take it seriously because it's not a bill that they care about, um, which, by the way, I should note, most pro-life bills go Monday night, which should tell you everything you need to know I'll about got a black pill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, So they'll come in Monday night. They'll have a vote at 530 and that's it. That's the only thing they do on Mondays. Um, they'll work Tuesday and Wednesday and then they'll be gone by Thursday afternoon. And, you know, they'll tee up whatever Monday, the Monday night vote is going to be. So basically Tuesday, Wednesday and half of Thursday are as much as the Senate actually works. And some people are like, well, we don't want them to work. We don't want them in town doing stuff. But at the end of the day, like we're paying these guys. And it's not necessarily that they could do more. That's not what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is for them to actually engage the process. Like when's the last time you saw an amendment vote on the Senate floor? probably a year ago. Well, we just got through reconciliation, so we saw a bunch more. But that's unusual, right? On most bills, the amendment tree is filled. You know, clotures jammed down, filed immediately. There's no debate. There's no deliberation. And, you know, my theory has always been you want to see less filibusters, give them an open amendment process. Let them participate. You know, let let people have their say, because at the end of the day, when you have all these amendment votes, you have very little reason to filibuster at the end because you're like, well, you know, I offered my amendment. They accepted or they didn't. Why am I filibustering? I tried. I had the opportunity.
1: Yeah, that's the really depressing piece about all this is you'll see a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, we don't want them to work full weeks because we want them to be normal people. And it's like, yeah, you know, that would be great if they weren't, you know, Getting lunches with like Lockheed Martin and Big Pharma, like in the f- in their free time, you know, it's a uh, it's a very blackpilling experience. Well,
2: to, it uh, it think. also empowers the judges, right? Going back to the judges' question, the less you know, the, when Congress doesn't engage on these big, like take tax cuts out of it, when they don't engage on the big cultural questions, when they don't engage on immigration, when they don't engage on pro life, when they don't engage on health care or any of these big meaningful policy questions that aren't just financial, they're cultural. Guess who does? The judges, right? And you, you have this is why I call them the juristocracy because they are making these big decisions that the legislature should be actually making. Our self, our self government should be, you know, is is supposed to be the most powerful through our representative, you know, democracy, which is Congress. Congress should be a very muscular branch, but it's not. They prefer a lot of these guys just prefer the judges to make the, the decisions. So I think it was very telling for McConnell to put his legacy there. Because he was he was saying, well, this is one thing. One, this is a very easy accomplishment for me because there's no filibuster. But two, I want to empower the, the I want to cede more of my legislative authority to these judges who will then make the decisions, the hard choices that my elected members then won't have to make.
0: It's funny, I came from mostly the Texas political world, and and this mindset that we don't want them working is, is literally built into the way that Texas government is structured because they only meet 140 days every two years. And the going theory for a long time, all through the Tea Party era and up until recently, was that helps protect liberty, that helps protect citizens' interests. However, coronavirus came around. And Texas did not have a full-time legislature. The ability to call the legislature in during special session is entirely contingent on the governor. You had a crisis in Texas society, and American society more broadly, and so policy had to be made. And now the governor has, uh, you know, abrogated all, or has 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 brought in all of this executive power that he previously didn't have, and that's very hard to put back inside the magician's hat or whatever strained analogy you're going to use here. And. And now people are starting to rethink that. And so at the federal level, the corollary probably is that, okay, if the legislative body is not making law, then the administrative state and judges are. Who do you like more? Right. Which one can you actually talk to? Yeah. Certainly not the administrative state and certainly not the judges.
1: Well, and which one can you get rid of? Like, right. that's that's the other point is you can always Vote theoretically, out. yeah, get rid of your congressional representative. You can't do that with judges. Right. Speaking
0: of getting rid of politicians, what do you make of uh, all of the foment that's been going on in Congress since uh, President Trump left office around folks like Liz Cheney, folks like Adam Kinzinger, uh, the politics of you know, how to or if to primary bad Republicans is something that you're very familiar with having come from the Tea Party era. What do you make of all that? Where do you think the right or, or maybe populists or nationalists have failed? Where do you think they may have succeeded? What, what do you think is going to happen?
2: It's a very interesting time <laughs> to be a fun time, I think, to to sort of be watching all of this, because I will say this. I think, you know, the mainstream press makes makes much of this idea that there's a war in the Republican Party. I think that that is a tempest in a teapot. I think the war in the Republican Party only exists in D.C. I think the base is very much, you know, where Trump was or sort of Trump adjacent. Right. I think they're sort of toward that version of what the GOP should be. I think all the people in D.C. who are like the party of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and, you know, Mitt Romney on some days, you know, I think the party of Liz Cheney exists in one place and that's in her mind. I don't think it actually has a constituency. I think it's a creation of sort of the D.C. Well, Lockheed Martin's
0: offices in Northern Virginia, I'll right? Yeah, that. That. yeah, no,
2: but I really, I really do think it, it doesn't actually have a constituency. I think it's very. I mean, if we want to go down that road, that is a, we, the Republican Party institutionally will be signing the the death warrant on its own irrelevance, like that. That's not where the base is anymore, and I think that's sort of self evident to most people. Corporate solicitude this
0: town. and war—not are not a yeah. winning message. Is right. that what you're saying? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, the two issues that animate Mitch McConnell: campaign finance and war. Yeah, it's not—it's not selling the Republican Party anymore. So I do think that, like, and I think there's people within, you know, the party that recognize this, but there's so much navel gazing in this town that you miss sort of the broad brushstrokes, I think, of where the movement is going. And it was interesting because I think I didn't watch a minute of CPAC, but I did see some of the clips from it. And Ron DeSantis in 30 seconds, I think, encapsulated a lot of where I think the movement is going when he said we need to aggress against China on trade. You know, we need to take on big tech. We need to treat immigration not only as a border security issue, but as a labor issue. Those were three issues to me that I think, speak very broadly to where the Republican Party is going, you know, as a working class party, as a, a party of, you know, free minds,
1: essentially. And you would never hear Liz Cheney talk about any of those things, no. by the way, which is interesting because like representing the state of Wyoming, you would think like a lot of people out there would, would care about those sorts of things, but it doesn't really seem to be the case.
2: It's because she's from, she's sort of from a political dynasty. Yeah. So I think she's representing that part of it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Why do you think
0: political dynasties are so successful? I mean, this is the thing that still baffles me to this day. I mean, we finally, uh, for the first time in 50 years, have no Kennedys in federal elected office, and God bless America for that. Um, why is it that the Bushes, the Cheneys, uh, these, these political dynasties are so effective? Is it just, I mean, how do they keep on getting elected? To me, like, it was a moment of utter shock as I was starting to learn about politics to find out a couple years ago that not only is there still a Cheney in federal elected office after all of the failures of the Bush administration, but she is also like the third-ranking Republican in the House conference. Like, How does that happen?
2: Yeah. Well, don't hit on dynasties too much. I think Don Jr. might run for this. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, is there going to be a Trump dynasty? We don't know. Um, so I think this speaks to how entrenched, you know, politics actually is. You know, I am encouraged a little bit by this new freshman class about how many political neophytes have been elected, people who weren't attached to like the broader interests or sort of the dynasties, you know, the families. That always encourages me because the dynasty sustained because there's so much money and there's so much apparatus in this town that it can be very difficult or very easy, depending on your point of view, to use that to vault yourself up and you know if you look at politics as you know your fulfillment as your you know family's destiny as that kind of thing there's a whole apparatus waiting all you have to do is press the red button and it's there for you so it's very easy for these guys to get into politics in a way that it's not as easy you know for a Lauren Bobert for instance from Colorado or Mary Miller one of my most favorite new republican mm-hmm. freshmen you know a farmer literally you know has no political background really like that is the stuff i love and i love that that's still possible so that actually is the white pill for this episode. It is it is still possible to get into politics without being attached to one of these like mega corporate dynasties.
1: White pill Monday. Here we, right. are. <laughs> we are. We uh, are we are in the middle of it. I
2: don't yeah. dispense the white pills easily. So,
1: yeah, well, we aren't attached
0: to any corporate dynasties. So yeah. we'll find out if uh, if we get washed out of here pretty rapidly uh, as well. Um What advice would you give? You know, there's a lot of young listeners that we have that listen to our podcast. Um, It's sort of terrifying how many of them do. I, at some level, feel responsible for them, which, again, terrifying at every level. You've taught a lot. You've mentored a lot of people over the years. You've been hugely helpful to us. What advice would you give to people who are thinking about getting involved in politics uh, in the medium to long term and and want to substantively contribute to this world?
2: So I think the most important thing, I mean, engage now, right? There's never a time that's too early to start engaging in whatever political apparatus is around you. I think political experience, whatever form it takes, is going to be very instructive. It's funny, you know, Ed Corrigan, who mentored me, um, who works here at CPI, learned so much of the procedural shenanigans he taught me in student government at University of Massachusetts. <laughs> so, like, it, it's never too early to start this. But I think, you know, from an ideological perspective... Read constantly and be critical. I think, you know, there's a notion in young Republican circles that, you know, to be a Republican, to be a conservative, you know, these are our tenets, and we do not depart from these tenets. But I think one of the things I read really early on was a, a book that Roger Scruton had written, in which he writes, you know, freedom is not a set of axioms, it's an evolving consensus. And that, I think, is how I've tried to structure my interaction with politics for my entire life is like, you know, the movement is constantly changing, the conservative movement and what's important to it. The principles never really change, but what they prioritize does change. And so I think be a person that's in touch with that, you know, by reading constantly, by not being stuck in D.C. all the time. Um, one of the best things I ever did was to not have all my friends on Capitol Hill, <laughs> to, you know, always stay attached to sort of where you're from, you know, have friends that don't care about politics, have friends that do care about politics and don't agree with you. Um, to be, you know, people I think early on like to say, well, well that's just, just you're wishy-washy and you're squishy. No, you're curious, you know. And, and so don't get entrenched in these ideologies that ossify into dogma and then break your brain, you know, when new problems arise that your ideology no longer solves. So I think that would be, you know, my earliest and best advice. But also come here. You know, D.C. is where it happens at the end of the day. So, you know, intern, um, come intern at CPI. Um, Do the
0: American Moment Fellowship. Do the American (laughs) Moment Fellowship. (laughs) You know,
2: engage the process um, and, you know, be open minded and it will never disappoint you.
0: Yeah, constantly. well, actually, it
2: probably will disappoint you, but
0: <laughs> right. I mean, politics ultimately will, and and that's why you know all of what we do is important. But uh, I think we also have to sometimes recognize that politics will not save us. Um, but there's important work to be done over here. Uh, You know, you talk about questioning dogma and and there's this thing that just came to mind back in, I think, 2001 or 2002 um, when like Pat Buchanan and some others were pushing back against the Iraq war. Uh, A lot of our friends at the American Conservative, for instance, were. Uh, David Frum wrote a piece at National Review calling them unpatriotic conservatives. Like it was considered the jingoistic, dogmatic thing that you had to be pro-war back then. And we spent a trillion dollars and killed tens of thousands of Americans doing it. Always be questioning because you never know what it is that, that you know, you were wrong on. And, uh, you know, that's what we've admired so much. I mean, it's funny because because you don't always buy into everything that the new right, quote unquote, uh, is, is for. You, you still have some reservations and stuff, but you're clearly approaching it from a critical perspective that's going to serve you better in the long term than just jumping onto one bandwagon to the next. Uh,
2: yeah, well, I also think too, like, What keeps a healthy perspective on all this stuff is to not make politics your entire life. By the way, I would also mention that.
0: Well, you are a sommelier in addition to all of the work you do at CPI. Um, You have taught uh, me a good deal about wine. Getting dinner with you is always like a little bit terrifying watching you (laughs) interrogate the wine menu. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for all the help that you've given us thus far. And uh, where can people find you in your work?
2: So you can find me here at CPI, Um, conservativepartnership.org.
0: It's CPI.org now. Oh, it's CPI.org. I can't (laughs) even keep up
2: with my own group. Um, But you can find all my work on Twitter until I get banned, um, at Rachel Bovard. And, you know, normally we would be drinking wine, except I gave it up for Lent, which was- We're doing bourbon instead. (laughs) Yeah, hindsight may have been a terrible life choice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming on the podcast, Rachel. Thanks for having me, guys. every week after our guest we like to talk a little bit about pieces that we have on AmCannon. that's our aggregator for some of the best stuff that we've found across the internet, books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, short pieces, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, one thing that, that we're honored to announce this week is we've assembled a feature of sorts um, on an issue that's core to everything we're trying to do at American Moment. It's titled Personnel is Policy. Now, we just spent uh, about 40 minutes talking with Rachel all about how personnel failures during the Trump administration caused serious problems to implement the reforms that President Trump ran and won on. Uh, what we've done in this feature if we, is we've assembled, um, you know, not only this podcast that we just did with Rachel and the piece that she wrote called Too Few of the President's Men, but a couple of other pieces that sort of walk you through what it means to understand the personnel problem in Washington, D.C. the way we do. Uh, you can find that on AmericanMoment.org, uh, on AmCannon under the features section. We highly recommend you check it out. But it's an issue that, that we truly believe in focusing on because it's one that's going to keep being a problem. Problem unless we devote specific attention to it.
1: You know, I said this in our first episode when we when we filmed with uh, Sagar and Jetty and Marshall Kozlov um, talking about how the Trump administration did not ever seem to learn uh, about their personnel issue over four years. And, you know, it's something that, you know, while we're talking about it on this podcast and with our esteemed guests, you know, we're hoping we'll be able to assist in fixing by the next Republican presidential administration. That's
0: right. And so, you know, if you're a young person who's involved in politics, there's a lot of options in front of you, especially on the right. Um, there's all sorts of money and fame available to someone who looks a little bit different than your average Republican voter uh, who can go up and and have the the quote unquote right opinions. Um What we're built around is encouraging you to take a different path. Your talents as a young, right-leaning person who shares our priorities are better suited to entering this fundamentally less sexy work. Um, And that's specifically the term that we used in our launch op-ed and founder's letter is because doing institution building work is, is hard. It's not it's not fun per se, but it does lend towards giving the American people a government that actually advocates for their interest. And so in some ways, it's one of the more noble things you can do. And so what we've tried to build American Moment around is basically encouraging young people to say, you know, don't necessarily go and try to get a career on television or or being a social media pundit, but build actual institutional credibility uh, and expertise. And, and we've designed our entire constellation of programming in order to incentivize that. And I think that this personnel as policy feature really goes into why it's so critical. So we really hope that you check it out and check out the rest of what we have at AmericanMoment.org. Please don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. Uh, Share it with your friends. Rate it five stars. But um, thank you for for giving it a listen, and uh, we'll see you next week.